Hi, welcome to season four of the Aced It podcast, where we translate science into sense. So you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, coming to you from Sam Houston State University in Texas, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. Aced It is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out our website, jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. Medicaid was signed into law in 1965. All states have Medicaid programs designed to provide health coverage for low-income people. And while the federal government establishes certain parameters that all states must follow, each state administers their Medicaid program differently. Texas, which has the highest rate of uninsured residents in the nation, is one of 12 states that has opted not to expand Medicaid using federal funds. To qualify for Medicaid in Texas, you must be low or very low income. For a single person, this means an annual income of under $27,000 before taxes, and you must be pregnant or responsible for a child 18 years of age or younger, or be blind, or have a disability or a family member in your household with a disability, or be 65 years of age or older. What this means is that it is virtually impossible for a young person without children to get coverage. In 2021, there were 4.2 million Texans enrolled in Medicaid, and 3 million of which were children. This number is higher than average and due in part to some COVID-related temporary changes like allowing pregnant mothers to stay on the insurance longer than the two months postpartum they were typically allowed. If Texas expands Medicaid, an estimated 1.4 million additional people would be eligible, and the federal government would cover 90% of that cost. Since 2021, proposals to expand Medicaid had the support of all 67 Democratic State House representatives and nine of the 83 House Republicans. However, Republican committee chairs in both the House and the Senate blocked bills from getting hearings. And according to a poll reported by the Texas Medical Association, 69% of Texans say the state should expand Medicaid to provide health insurance to low-income people who are uninsured. So what are the arguments against expanding Medicaid? Well, according to statements by Republican representatives quoted in several articles by the Texas Tribune, they include the following. Expanding Medicaid will encourage government dependence. It will deliver poor health outcomes. It will crowd out Medicaid patients who are already getting low quality of care due to the limited number of physicians who accept Medicaid patients because of low reimbursements. And it will drive up the cost of private insurance. And this isn't surprising. We saw in the podcast last week that political affiliation had a big impact on support for policies that help individuals with opioid use disorder the expansion of Medicaid, being one of those policies. When opinions vary on issues, it is often presented in the media as two different sides. One side feels this way and the other side feels this way. But being scientists, we have the benefit, at least in this case, of looking at the arguments and testing them. Because in this case, we don't have to rely on an unprovable counterfactual. We can look at states that have expanded Medicaid and see what the impact has been. Three studies in the Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network do just that, 
and can help us understand some implications of Medicaid expansion in two states, Wisconsin and Rhode Island. A research project directed by Dr. Marguerite Burns in collaboration with colleagues from the University of Wisconsin, Wisconsin Department of Corrections, and Wisconsin Department of Health Services analyzed data from the Wisconsin Department of Corrections and the Wisconsin Medicaid program from the years 2013 to 2015. They wanted to see what happens to Medicaid enrollment among recently incarcerated people following two policy changes. First, in April 2014, the Wisconsin Medicaid program expanded eligibility to include all adults with income at or below 100% of the federal poverty level. And then in January 2015, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections implemented pre-release Medicaid enrollment assistance at all state correctional facilities. This included 24,235 individuals, 12,877 of which had a history of substance abuse. They wanted to know the impact of these policies on Medicaid enrollment. What they found was that Medicaid enrollment in the month following release from state prison grew from 8% of adults at baseline to 36% after the state expanded eligibility. After the Department of Corrections began helping people enroll, the percentage of returning residents who enrolled in Medicaid grew by 61%. Black adults were 3.5% more likely than white adults to be enrolled in Medicaid in the month following release. Okay, so Medicaid expansion and helping individuals enroll do indeed significantly impact how many people get on Medicaid. So the next question we might ask is, well, did it increase use of the healthcare system? The same group of scholars and practitioners led by Dr. Burns use the same data set to examine the use of outpatient emergency department and inpatient care of 16,307 adults with a history of substance use released from state prison between April 1st, 2014 and December 31st, 2016 in the month following their release from prison. They had three findings. First, they found that the presence of a prison-based Medicaid enrollment assistant program was associated with a large increase in the likelihood of having an outpatient visit within the first 30 days after release. In total, about 24% of the population had an outpatient visit within 30 days of release after the enrollment assistance program was implemented. Second, despite large relative increases for outpatient care associated with substance use disorders, the absolute levels of health care related to substance use immediately following release from incarceration remained low. Less than 4% of individuals had a substance use disorder-related outpatient visit within 30 days of release. And third, they did not find evidence of reductions in the use of hospital-based care. Taken together, these indicate the potential of expanding Medicaid as well as its limitations. There may be any number of barriers associated with accessing healthcare, including health literacy, competing social and economic priorities, and logistical challenges. One intervention aimed at addressing these barriers are transitional care clinics, the models are being tested in other JCOIN studies as we speak. The natural experiments in Wisconsin provide fertile ground to examine some of the impacts of expanding Medicaid and facilitating enrollment. Like Dr. Brown in Wisconsin, Dr. Benjamin Howell and colleagues conducted a similar study using two similar data sets in Rhode Island, one from the Department of Corrections and one from Medicaid claims filed with Health and Human Services. 
But in this case, the study looked at only 807 individuals who had been incarcerated in the state prison at two different time points. During a time that medications for opioid use disorder were not offered and during a time that they were. Further, these individuals must have participated in the medications for opioid use disorder program while incarcerated between November of 2016 through December of 2018 and enrolled in Medicaid. They wanted to compare the cost of health care for this group before and after they received medications for opioid use disorder. So less a test of whether access to Medicaid impacted their access to health care and more focused on how access to medications for opioid use disorder impacted costs. But the fact is taken for granted that everyone in the sample was also on Medicaid insurance. As the authors note, the majority of incarcerated people in Rhode Island are eligible for Medicaid, and there are real concerns about the cost of providing people medications for opioid use disorder, many of whom were not on these medications in the community. The team classified costs as either acute or non-acute costs. Acute costs included emergency room visits and other inpatient costs associated with addiction services, such as substance use detoxification or rehabilitation. Non-acute outpatient costs were those services not associated with a claim for acute health care and included pharmacy use. And they added the cost for each person. They added up the cost of their care in the community after they were released with medications for opioid use disorder and the cost of their care after they were released with medications for opioid use disorder. They divided this sum by the total number of years they were in the community to derive a per-year cost, and then they compared the time periods to check for statistically significant differences between the two. Of the 807 people in the sample, 444 received methadone, 346 received buprenorphine, and 17 received injectable naltrexone. They found, ready? No significant difference in the total cost before and after exposure to medications for opioid use disorder, but there was a difference in how that money was spent. Medicaid paid more toward emergency room visits before individuals received medications for opioid use disorder and more for outpatient services and pharmacy claims after people were exposed to the medications. The shift in cost also coincided with a decrease in fatal overdoses. Let me say it again. The shift in cost also coincided with a decrease in fatal overdoses. The authors also noted that increased outpatient services can lead to improved detection and treatment of other chronic diseases like hepatitis C, which would be associated with short-term increased costs. Not going to repeat that one, but I hope you got it. GOP State Representative James Frank and the chair of the House Human Services Committee stated in 2001, I remain convinced that there are better ways for Texas to improve access and affordability of health care for all Texans than Medicaid expansion, unquote. Taken together, Our studies show the power of Medicaid expansion on getting vulnerable people connected to health insurance. We've seen how getting connected to health insurance might impact how we seek health care, though many other barriers remain. And we've seen how it can shift the costs from acute care, such as emergency room visits, to regular health care visits and medication, or non-acute care. 
While Republicans seek alternatives, millions of Texans and people in 11 other states that have opted not to expand Medicaid languish without health care. It's a bit like watching people die of dehydration while you hold a bottle of water because you're convinced you can find better water. In light of the evidence we have, some of which was presented here, this argument, or their argument, frankly, doesn't hold water. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also, remember you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.gmuace.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACED is part of the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. Tune in again for more science and more sense with ACED.